Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Beyond the Crucible. I think in some ways, trying to carry on the legacy of others can be playing small, even if maybe they have some prominent career, what have you, is living in light of somebody else's dream. It's playing small. I mean, I honestly believe it's very difficult to do a good job if you're living a life of obligation. You really can't. It's not sustainable. I mean, I'm somebody that has high perseverance, high determination, if you will. But in one sense, can you imagine if I'd never done the takeover or if it had succeeded and I'd spent 20, 30, 40 years, you know, in the family newspaper business, in this gilded prison, if you will. I mean, it would have been soul destroyed. Soul destroying. Think about that for a moment. Not just hard, not just unfulfilling, not just feeling trapped, but having your dreams and passions, the essence of who you are, obliterated. That's the fate that can await us if we pursue what pleases others, not what ignites our spirits. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. This week, Warwick and I discuss his latest blog at beyondthecrucible.com, titled Seven Ways to Live by Your Passions, Not Others' Expectations. In the piece and in our conversation, he unpacks key building blocks to develop and deploy a vision for a life of significance that you, not your friends or family, are uniquely off the charts passionate about. The bookend exhortations are, remember, it's your life, and do something. In between, you'll discover what you need to know and do to avoid living, as Warwick puts it, a dreary black and white life of obligation and people-pleasing. going to talk about listener today is Warwick's latest blog at beyondthecrucible.com, which is called Seven Ways to Live by Your Passions, Not Others' Expectations. Um, you may notice a theme in here. I'm, maybe I'll ask him about it as we talk. Warwick likes to write them in sevens. So it's seven ways to live by your passions, not others' expectations. The first place to start with this, Warwick, is why this subject? Uh, you know, what is it that... Uh, that led you to to write about this particular subject right now? Yeah, Gary, you know, a lot of the times we live to please others, to make them happy. Uh, we're often told by family, friends, um, maybe even people at work that um, kind of our needs, our dreams don't matter, that to think of ourselves is somehow being selfish. And we're also told we need to be practical. So we need to be practical. We need to be selfless. We have an obligation to our family, uh, to friends, those we work with. And so the idea that we would actually think about our own dreams, our own visions, is seen right. to be selfish. It seems like we're not really serving our family. And so it's almost like this guilt trip of obligation that um, we have this obligation to our family and to others. We need to be practical. So this dreams and vision, it just... It can be painted as, well, you're just being selfish, that you care about your family, about others, and and what we think and our heritage. And It's interesting, Warwick, and, and in the same way that you talk about crucible experiences and their effect on us 
as we try to move beyond them. It, it's interesting that you're writing about this subject, the way that you've just kind of explained it, because um, I happen to know this. Listeners probably know this too, but this is a this is kind of personal to you. You have some personal connection to this topic, right? I do. I mean, I did indeed grow up in a family where that obligation philosophy was there. And it wasn't heavy-handed, which is sort of interesting. I think listeners have heard this, but um, you know, I grew up as uh, as the great great grandson of John Fairfax, the founder of a very large family media business. I was the fifth generation in Australia. Um, I was expected by my parents to go into the family business and take a leading role, and so I did my undergrad degree at Oxford, like my dad and some other relatives. I worked on Wall Street got my MBA at Harvard Business School. And ultimately, this sense of duty and obligation uh, led me to launch a $2.25 billion takeover back in 1987. Uh, my parents uh, felt like the company wasn't being well run, run along the deals of the founder. I believe that too. Ultimately, uh, a combination of uh, too much debt and my own youthful naivety uh, led to uh, the company uh, going under in uh, or into bankruptcy in late 1990 when Australia faced a big recession. But it was just this whole sense that um, this was my destiny, this was my duty. Yeah, and so the idea that you could actually do what you wanted to and live your own hopes and dreams, yeah, it seemed that seemed very selfish and self-centered. It just seemed wrong to me. You weren't allowed to do that, at least in my case. And it's interesting because we've never talked about this part. I've never asked you this question. I've never heard you talk about it. As you look back, right, you you say in the blog that you it was just outside the realm of, of possibility that you ever would consider your own vision, your own passions, your own desires. Um, but as you look back, can you pinpoint, even though you weren't doing it at the time, can you pinpoint what might have been? Had you had the freedom to choose your own way, or had you felt you had that freedom? Can you pinpoint what that might be, or is that lost to time? Yeah, it's an interesting question, Gary. I suppose I just wanted to be normal. I wanted to live right. a normal life. I didn't want to be seen as the son of Sawarak Fairfax, or the same name as I did, except knighthood. Uh, very prominent, very respected family, but it felt like living in a goldfish bowl growing up in uh, in Sydney. So I wanted a normal life where I could be what I wanted to be. And I remember there was, you know, we all daydream about things, but I remember um, right. my parents somehow knew, um, I guess, the wife of uh, J.C. Penney. And uh, maybe we, I don't know, in the late 70s, met her or something. Uh, she would have been in her 80s probably by then. You know, they gave me this one of these simple books, you know, like 80-page books about the life of, you know, James Cash Penny, uh, I think his name was. And just hearing about how he grew up in the, in the West and, you know, Colorado and Wyoming, I forget exactly where his first store was, but it was this small little town and he had this little grocery store and he would try to serve the needs of the people in that town and everybody would know him and obviously ended up, you know, starting a whole massive chain. But I remember thinking, gosh, to have like a little store in a small little town somewhere where you'd <laughs> see everybody, you could provide a service to them, you know, to friends and neighbors, it seemed idyllic. I'm sure it wasn't idyllic. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there was, you know, the depression and all sorts of hardships, but daydreams, you don't take account of that. But uh, 
yeah, just really to be normal, uh, some small town somewhere. Uh, I've always loved American history, so maybe some somewhere in America, but just to be uh, just to be normal. And, and the funny thing is, um, uh, my wife Gail, she grew up in Northeast Ohio in a small town, Canfield, Ohio, um, near the Pennsylvania border. Dad was a, a doctor. That pretty much seemed like that idyllic small little American town where everybody knew everybody and had the cute Fourth of July parade. And right, right, right. Um, it pretty much was the personification of a small little town, which seemed pretty idyllic to me. Before we get into, and as I said at the top, right, there's seven tips, folks, that Warwick's going to go through. But before we get into that, I just want to make it clear and have you talk about it a little bit, is that what you're talking about, you've just given a story about John Fairfax, $2.25 billion, big company, Oxford, Harvard Business School. It's clear, and you make a point in the blog, that that this isn't just something that applies to folks who have sort of a rich, uh, deep financial legacy. This is, this can be something that's common for all of us, This these expectations that can sort of cramp out what it is that we want to do. Absolutely, Gary. I mean, obviously, few people uh, grow up in the kind of background that I did. But there's often a lot of pressures. Maybe a mom or dad was a doctor or a lawyer, and they have some ends, let's say, with being a lawyer that can get you into their practice or somebody else. And there's this sense of, um, well, be practical. You can get a good living doing this. And so just the idea that I just want to do what I want to do, you might want to be a sculpting musician, a school teacher, uh, you know, maybe like if you're a good writer, People will often say, well, go be a lawyer, you know, because right. that's very helpful. If you're good at communicating and writing, then you might say, but I want to write poems or short stories. Where's the money in writing poems or short stories? It's probably <laughs> not going to be there. You'll probably live right. an impoverished life. But I guess, and people will say, we need to be practical. Okay, come on. You got to have a family and support a family, you know, on, uh, and how are you going to do that being a poet? Be a lawyer. Come on, be sensible. Right. And obviously, we should take account of those differences. But I feel like it's our life. You know, if we don't want to be a lawyer just because we're good at writing, you know, that's our choice. Now, there are consequences to that, like lower income. But, you know, I feel like we should be able to do what we want to do, not just be practical and don't be selfish to do what you want to do. You know, make your parents proud, be a lawyer, be a doctor. I get where other folks are coming from, but it's really not up to them. It's about it's up to us. Right. And what you've just been saying strikes something that that from my own experience that's I think informative to this conversation. And that is I hadn't thought about this in a long time, but when I was graduating from high school, my older brother Jeff, uh, who was on his way to becoming, he was a car salesman and he pioneered the idea of auto malls. And he did, you know, he was, he was, he was chugging along to make money. And I wanted to be first a teacher, and then I wanted to be a writer, and I've become a writer. And he wrote me, I still have the card work that he wrote me, he wrote me a, a graduation card in which he said, you know, no matter what you do, be sure it pays a lot of money because life is out to, you know, mess with the little guy or however that worked. And that, that really, that did indeed weigh on me. It, it, it didn't change the direction I took, but it, 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 
it didn't really even give me pause, but there was that that pr that loving pressure in some ways, right? He was trying to he he was speaking from his values and what he thought would be a benefit to me, and but if I would have pursued selling cars, oh my goodness, Warwick, I would be you know I would be dead man walking, right? I mean, I just could. That's not who I am. Um, so this really strikes home, right? Not just for you, it strikes home for me, and I have a much more um, a, a far different background as we've talked many times before. Well, and and just on that point, Gary, you could have said, well, maybe Jeff will end up earning more money than I will. I don't know. Who's to say? Right. But it's like, is that going to change the course of my life and let me go make you know, sell cars just so I can make more money? You made the decision, look, I respect my brother, but I don't know what life's going to hold for me, but I'm not going to make decisions just based on you know, what can get me the most money, right? You intuitively it right. may have weighed on you, but it didn't change the course of your life, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, to get back to the title of the blog, right? I found a way to live by my passions, not others' expectations or even others' wants, others' desires, others' advice. Um, so that's why this blog really does apply to uh, so many different, I mean, to everybody in in, in its own unique way. So let's move on and, and, and get into these seven points uh, because one of the great things about the blogs that you write, Warwick, and, I, I, and if, you know, I've said before, I wouldn't just kind of do puffery for you. If I didn't think it, I wouldn't say it. But but one of the things I love about the blogs that you do is that it doesn't just say, here's the problem, right? The problem is don't let other people's expectations drive your, your vision. Um, you don't stop there. You offer now then tips, things you can do to make sure that that's not the life that you end up um, living and very, very likely not being happy with. So the first of the seven points I'd love to hear you talk about, and um, it, it, it's a great reminder for folks. The first words of point one is, first, it's your life. Unpack that a little bit about how important it is to remember this is our life we're talking about. Well, it is your life. It's not your mother's, your father's, brothers, sisters, cousins, grandparents, friends, co-workers. It is your life. From my perspective, we have the God-given right to pursue our dreams, our calling. You know, we designed a certain way. We have uh, certain passions. You know, we should live in light of who we were meant to be. You know, we're uh, imbued with certain design. We have passions that grow over time. It's not wrong. It's not selfish to be who you are. So if somebody says that's selfish or it's not practical, I mean, and from my perspective, that's just wrong. That's wrong. Right. We have every right to be who we are and you know, live our life in light of our values, our calling, our passion, our design. That's not wrong. And I will unpack some other tips, but you've got to lean into that and respectively say to mom or dad or whoever, look, I respect what you're saying, but but no, I, I don't want to do that. That is the reality in many people's upbringing. If you tread a path that's different than everybody else in your family, sometimes it'll be supported. Often it won't be because it makes them feel potentially bad about themselves. So psychology is not always our friend, unfortunately. So it's yeah. a real issue for many people. Yeah, and I'll, uh, for my own story, again, I'll, I'll give a sort of a positive angle on that. That is, right, I didn't become a car salesman. I didn't look about making all the money like my brother said to me, but I went into journalism. I was a writer and I, I, I was a reporter. And, and my mom, 
who who passed away before um, she got to see. I've written four books. She hasn't. She didn't get a chance to see those, but she got to see me as a journalist. She got and she 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 subscribed to every paper in all the cities I lived in, Warwick, and she had those delivered to her house in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and she drove around with those papers in the front seat of her car. So if she bumped into friends, she could say, look at what my son did. To the point to the point that even when I stopped being a reporter and, and became an editor and my name wasn't showing up on stories, she still did that, even though there was nothing to show them. There was nothing like Gary edited this story. It didn't say edited by Gary Schneeberger. It just was a story that I was working on. So it, it, to your point, how can that be selfish? How can that be wrong? Uh, many times as you do pursue those things, it can uh, be something that your family, they see how it brings you alive. And that's a good thing. Um, and, and that certainly has been my story, uh, for sure. The second point, Warwick, uh, in the blog that you have at beyondthecrucible.com is to examine why we feel obligated to please others. That's an important, that's an important place to go. First, understand it's your life, but then if something's tugging at you, feeling like it's holding you back, examine why you feel obligated to please others. Unpack that a little bit for folks. Yeah, in order to move on from something and to understand if it's fair or unfair, the why matters. So, you know, we might feel obligated to please our family or friends. And sometimes maybe our family have unfulfilled dreams. Maybe we have a family member that wished they could go to college, but um, sometimes there are circumstances that intervene. In fact, I think in the case of J.C. Penney, he was going to go to college, but his dad died uh, fairly young. And, you know, as often happens, he felt like he had to make money to help support his family and, right. and mother and all that. And so that's, that's reality. Well, sometimes adverse circumstances happen. I don't know, you've got these unfulfilled dreams and you want to, your kids to live out those, those dreams that can be good or bad, but it's, that, that's often not very helpful. Or maybe they feel like their legacy uh, depends on what we do. Maybe they're sort of uh, first-generation Americans, immigrants, and it's like, look, you know, you've got to go to college, you've got to be a doctor or a lawyer because that's why we came to America, to live the American dream. And it's like, well, yeah, but I want to be a carpenter. I want to be a builder. I just love working with my hands. That may not go down too well in certain communities, you know, depending on the culture. So right. it's understandable. I'm not blaming people for wanting the best for their kids. That's not wrong in a sense. But, you know, living our lives based on obligation or making our parents or others happy, that's not right. I mean, they have the right to pursue their dreams. Well, so do you, you know, whether their intentions right. are good or bad. And sometimes they might be good. You know, they want the best for their kids. So you know, go to law school, go to medical school. I said, well, thanks, mom or dad, but I don't think I want to do that. You know, you're not letting them down by being who you are. That may disappoint them, but. So, you know, the why matters of why we feel obligated to please others, understanding that, maybe forgiving them that, you know, yeah. un understanding is the first steps towards forgiveness. Uh, and they hopefully over time will come on board with who you are. But if they don't, that's not on you. And this would be a good time to say that the blog is absolutely written to individuals who don't live your life by the expectations of others. I would say that also in this blog, it can be read by those who maybe have those expectations to help them help their 
friends, children, grandchildren. Take a look at this if you might be in that position where you have children or friends or grandchildren that you might want to think you want to influence them to go a certain way. Take a look at this blog at beyondthecrucible.com because it'll give you some tips of what not to do, which I think is also very helpful in this case. And uh, just on that point, Gary, because that's such an important point you just raised. Um, you know, as a parent of three kids from early 30s down to 20s, I mean, obviously, I tried at my you know, best degree to live this out. Fortunately, I don't have a family business to, uh, to worry about and have that trip <laughs> on them. So that's good. But, um, you know, if you have kids, whether it's teenagers or older, don't you want them to be happy, to live in light of their gifting? I would say God-given gifting and their passions. We should try and encourage that. Maybe even say, hey, it looks like you really love athletics or boy, it seems like you, know, you can sell anything to anybody. You had a lemonade stand at five and you know, raked in more money than anybody else. We just, you have this capacity to, to sell. Well, great. Then, you know, or you might be a writer or a scientist or whatever it is. I think if anything, rather than put expectations, we should encourage our kids to be who they are and in light of their passion. And if they say, well, that's not right. really it. Okay, great. You know, as I say in coaching, you know, you, you can offer a suggestion, but have a light hand. Okay. I, you know, it seemed like you were good at this, but that's fine. So I think you can do the opposite and help encourage your kids in areas that really uh, line up with their passions and their gifting. That's the opposite. So I think parents and mentors, they can actually be encouraging uh, rather than discouraging. They can be a catalyst rather than an impediment. Right. And, and the points that you make in this blog are, 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 are tailor-made for folks to do that, to help their own kids. Before we move on to point three, I, I, I pulled some quotes. Um, this is a good time, I think, to, to read this one. Ray Bradbury, the author, said this, Love what you do and do what you love. Don't listen to anyone else who tells you not to do it. You do what you want, what you love. Imagination should be the center of your life. So Ray Bradbury gets or got what it is that uh, that you're talking about here, Warwick. Uh, third point that you talk about here is uh, all about the dangers of playing small, right? We talk, we've talked on this show many times about playing small. Um, what does that mean and why is that dangerous? Uh, for folks who want to pursue their own vision for their life, not the expectations of others. I think in some ways, trying to carry on the legacy of others can be playing small, even if maybe they have some prominent career, what have you, is um, living in light of somebody else's dream. It's playing small. I mean, I honestly believe it's very difficult to do a good job if you're living a life of obligation. You really can't. It's not sustainable. I mean, I'm somebody that has high perseverance, high determination, if you will. But in one sense, can you imagine if I'd never done the takeover or if it had succeeded and I'd spent 20, 30, 40 years, you know, in the family newspaper business, in right. this gilded prison, if you will? I mean, it would have been soul destroying. It would have been tough. Yeah, I think, you know, living somebody else's life. I believe is playing small, living your own life. And it doesn't matter whether that dream is seen by some as massive or not so big. Uh, playing small means you're not living in light of your own dreams and passions. Right. I took a note uh, somewhere. I have to find it here when we were talking about how your story can still have 
really resonant points for folks, even if they haven't had Harvard Business School, Oxford, $2.25 billion family media dynasty of 150 years. And I wrote, um, expectations are no respecter of bank balances, right? I mean, these <laughs> things all apply to uh, your vision can be, you've said it so many times, it's it's not the size of the vision that counts, it's where the vision's coming from. The authenticity of the vision that counts is really the point that you're trying to make, uh, I think, in this third point. The fourth point that you make here is uh, shift your thinking. Um, so again, I, I love how you sort of build one step upon the other. You've, you've, the, the, the dangers of playing small now shift your thinking. Uh, what does that mean for folks? How, how can they do that? And why is that important for them to do? Yeah. I mean, having kind of understood why you feel obligated and you've made a determination not to play small by loving somebody else's dream, shifting your thinking is really about shifting it to what you're really good at, what you're passionate about, what you know, a vision that lasts will be tied to your values, your design, your passion. It'll be something that's so exciting that, you know, you'll almost lay awake at night just dreaming about it, thinking about it, saying, boy, I would love to do that. That would just be so fun. Um, you know, uh, I know it's not fashionable to say work can be fun. Not every day, even when you're living your, your vision is, is this wonderful, you know, <laughs> Disneyland experience. Yeah, you know, right. there'll be challenges. I get that. But in terms of the arc of your life, the arc of your career, there will be this sense of satisfaction. And you know, there's another component we talk a lot about up beyond the crucible, which is a true vision uh, that lasts has to be based on a life of significance, a life on purpose dedicated to serving others. Uh, because when it's all about you, hey, I want to make money and have a big house, big car, big boat, and it's all about me, Humans were designed to get joy and fulfillment out of serving others, out of some higher purpose. You may agree or disagree with that in terms of whether you like it, but from a human psychology point of view, it is a fundamental truth. It, obviously, you want to live a life in light of your uh, passions, design, but that vision has to somehow make the world a better place, somehow has to serve others. And that could be some global nonprofit, or it could be just in your neighborhood. You know, as I've often said, you know, making an inner city park uh, safer for just kids in the area. I mean, the the size of the vision isn't some you know material as how passionate you are about it. But that other-centered life of significance component that's really critical to have a vision that lasts. When it's about other people, the excitement and the passion, I don't think will fade. It will continue, maybe even for decades. If it's about helping others, because each life story changed will be like, that's why I'm doing it. I'm doing it for her. I'm doing it for him. That's why I'm doing this. I'm making a difference one life at a time. It, it just fuels your passion, fuels your perseverance. This is a good time to sort of stop and say, if, if there was a patient zero, and there is a patient zero for point four, shift your thinking and do everything that you talked about. I'm going to go out and it's not even a limb. I'm going to go out on a very strong branch and say that you, Warwick Fairfax, are patient zero when it comes to to this idea, right? This is how this is how beyond the crucible, not just this podcast, but the whole brand. This is the reason beyond the crucible exists because you did this, right? Well, it's kind of easy to say that. I mean, certainly in my own way, I try after the trauma of you know losing a 150-year-old family company and feel like, you know, causing friction within the family. I wanted to feel like, is, is there some way that my mistakes uh, and the pain 
can be redeemed in a way. So with Beyond the Crucible, right. as we often say, you know, we try to help people realize um, that you know their worst day doesn't define them; that there is hope. You can bounce back, and we've shared stories on this podcast uh, and on my book of uh, just stories of uh, how people have come back from incredibly challenging circumstances. So I find that very motivating. Uh, you know, if just one person or a few or more feels like it helps them, yeah, I'm, I feel like life should be lived uh, trying to help others in my own small way. I try and do that. So uh, yeah, it's very, it's very motivating. Very, I find it very encouraging. I was right. See, it wasn't a it wasn't a limb. I wasn't on a limb. I was on a very strong platform when I brought that up. That's good. Uh, we are talking, listener, in case um, you've lost track here, we're talking about Warwick's new blog at beyondthecrucible.com called Seven Ways to Live by Your Passions, Not Others' Expectations. And we are on to um, point five. I'll go through the first four points uh, that we've gone through so far. Number one is, first, remember, it's your life. Two, examine why we feel obligated to please others. Three, there's dangers in thinking small. And four is shift your thinking. Five, Warwick, is um, now that you've, you've shifted your thinking, now that you're kind of pointing the ship in the right direction, the fifth point, very important, because some people can feel overwhelmed. Oh my gosh, how am I going to do all of this stuff? Even if it's a small vision, there's a lot of steps to it. So step five is, point five is think about small steps, small probes. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's so important, Gary. Sometimes, uh, and we did a recent um, podcast on Walt Disney, and it's like, oh man, I'll never be Walt Disney. Found Disney World and um, Disneyland. I mean, that's just forget about it. But um, as we said in that podcast, even Disney started with small steps. How can I make animated cartoons better? Back in the twenties. Right. So think about small steps, small probes. You may not know what your ultimate vision is, and frankly, visions. And dreams, they can grow and change, like Disney's change from making uh, animated cartoons a bit better to, you know, uh, evolve into, you know, Disneyland and, and beyond. So sometimes you don't quite know, gosh, I don't really have a vision that's going to change the world. Or, I don't know about my neighborhood, but, you know, at some point you've got to try something. I almost would say try anything, but, you know, I'm a great believer in trusting your gut, trusting the process. What that means is, you typically have an inkling, you know, I don't know where I'm going to be in 10 years, 20 years. I don't even know about five, but I have a feeling like this next step is the right one. Let me just try this. Doesn't mean necessarily quitting your job. Maybe it's some nonprofit on the side or or, or some other you know, job, maybe part-time job, right. whatever it is. Just consider doing that because ultimately by trying different things, maybe the first baby step you'll try is or small program, that didn't work out. But eventually you'll find things, well, I didn't like that because it didn't have A or B. Okay, great. Well, what other small probe does have A or B that the first thing didn't have? So, you know, I guess in summary, I'd say trust yourself, trust the process. And just by way of example in my own life, and I've shared this, when I was working in, you know, mid-90s to early 2000s at an aviation services company here in Maryland doing financial uh, you know, business analysis and, you know, getting good performance reviews, I felt like I'm not really living in light of my design. I don't know that I'm really passionate about it. I mean, it's great. I'm doing a good job. At least they think I am. But I went to a woman that was uh, a mid-career executive coach. And she said, you know, Warwick, you've got a great profile to be an executive coach. So I went to my first International Coach Federation conference in Denver. And I felt like, 
these are my people. They're curious. They're non-judgmental. They love to learn. I'd like to think, you know, my best self, so to speak, are those things. Now, I love coaching, but was that, you know, the end point of my vision? No. It evolved then to being on a couple of nonprofit boards, to writing my book, to having this podcast. There's no way I would have known all of that at the time. What was the first right step for me? It was to explore being an executive coach. That wasn't necessarily the only end destination, but it was it was a step. So trust yourself, trust the process, even if you don't have this Walt Disney-sized vision, which at least in the common parlance, few of us do. But what's that next right step for you? Trust your gut. Yeah, and in the beginning, Walt Disney really didn't have a Walt Disney-sized vision either, right? I mean, exactly it's, right. It's something, it's, it's something that developed. And it, here's something that develops, uh, uh, listener, which is fun. Uh, I pull quotes for episodes like this and what Warwick was just been talking about. Here's the quote that fits perfectly with that. John Wooden, uh, the, the legendary college basketball coach uh, for, at uh, UCLA, said this, don't give up on your dreams or your dreams will give up on you. Everything Warwick was just talking about is pursuing your dreams one step at a time. Keep doing it, keep doing it. And next thing you know, you're going to be at that 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 place where you feel like you're living the life of significance, which I know, Warwick, that's where you believe that you're at. And I would say you are at. So uh, you don't have to say that. I'll say that for you. You're at that. <laughs> um, the sixth point in this blog of seven ways to live by your passions, not other, not others' expectations, is something that you have talked about maybe the, the fifth, in, in the top five of the subjects you talk about when it comes to bouncing back from your crucibles, you talk about this. You call it here, gather your team in other places. You've called it, get a team of fellow travelers. Why is that so critical, both to what we're talking about in the blog and generally speaking in bouncing back from your crucible? You know, it's easy to find a team of naysayers, a team of obligation, a team of people pleasers. You might say, look, given the neighborhood we grew up in, uh, this whole go to college thing, be a doctor, it makes no sense. Nobody from our neighborhood will do that. They don't let people like us in. I remember folks, I went to Baylor College at Oxford that had a history of encouraging folks from all backgrounds, all over the world, all different income groups. And I remember there were a number of, you know, young people from the north of England, which is sort of like the industrial belt of, of, uh, of Britain. And the dads might have been coal miners. It's like people like us don't go to college. And it's like, do they even let us in? Because they had very thick accents, not sort of the upper crust English accent, if you will. Um, class system, certainly in the 70s, was still, you know, pretty big. And there was this notion, well, they don't let people like us into college, do they? Oxford, oh, come on, you know. So there can be, you can have friends or family say, well, no, people, they don't let people like us into Oxford. That just doesn't happen. You know, if you're with your accent, they'll just laugh at you. You know, the, the memes mm -hmm. go on, the negative, unsupportive memes. And so what you got to do is res obviously respect family and all that, but find a team that's going to encourage you. Maybe you have a mate or maybe there's a teacher at school that comes from your background. And this often happened. And they did go to Oxford. And they can say, no, I come from the same neighborhood that you did. And I went to Oxford. And at least at the college I went to, you know, um, they give you a shot. Um, and, you know, if you study hard, uh, sky's the limit kind of thing. So you want to, whether it's mentors, friends, you want folks that will encourage you in your dreams and not push against that. 
It's fine to ask questions. Hey, what college were you thinking of? What major? How are you going to do that? Not in a negative way, but some questions help us and some pull us down. So you want to gather a team who will help you pursue your dream. It won't be like a 10-ton weight weighing you down saying, you know, people like us, we don't do that. You know, that kind of refrain, which is so unhelpful. So, you know, find the people that will champion you and champion your dreams. And frankly, don't spend as much time around to the degree you can you can do it about people who are the naysayers who will just say, no, you know, people like us, we don't do that. You don't want to, you don't want to listen too much to those people. It's just not helpful. Right. And this is one of those areas, Warwick, that you live out. I mean, you have built and you continue to build a team around you at Beyond the Crucible that does indeed help you, right, reach the 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 vision that you have. And um, I'm going to, this is kind of fun because I'm the co-host, so I'm not, I'm not normally able to do this, but I'm going to forbid you from mentioning me as part of the team because <laughs> I, I, I'm not looking for a pat on the back or anything, but right, you've built a team of people that helps you do that. So you know, how, how has that helped you? How is, how is bringing people of different backgrounds, bringing people different abilities than you, uh, how has all that helped what's going on right now with uh, Beyond the Crucible? Enormously. I mean, I'm a reflective advisor, so I feel like I can write decently and I'm always reflecting and thinking. I can hopefully ask decent questions, but I hate selling. I hate asking <laughs> people for things. So whether it's, you know, selling a product, asking uh, a guest to be on the podcast. I mean, is that selling? It is to me. <laughs> you know? yeah. So yeah. I hate <laughs> I hate doing any of that. And so we have people that are good at selling. We've got a great team, whether it's, you know, branding, graphic design. Uh, I won't mention the co-host because I'm forbidden for doing that. But, um, <laughs> uh, but whoever that co-host is, who shall remain anonymous. But yeah, we've got a great team at Beyond the Crucible. And one of the keys is you want to create people, create a team with people who aren't, you know, they don't just believe in the vision and everybody on that team obviously does, otherwise they wouldn't wouldn't be here. Uh, right. But they have skills that you don't have. And a smart man or woman says, look, I don't have all the gifts. So I want to surround myself with people who have gifts that I don't have. So that's, that's part of, you know, we talk about in um, fellow travelers, one group of the encouragers, but there's the others who have complementary gifts gifts that you don't have. Both are important for bringing your vision to reality. It's it, it's interesting now because we're going to move on to the to the seventh point. And I just noticed something I didn't notice before. So your first point, we go back to the first point, and that was, it's your life. Point one is, it's your life. Point seven, folks, is do something. Okay? I think all of this could be compressed into those two items if you wanted to, right? It's your life. So live it according to your passions. And do something about getting after your passions and your vision. Um, talk about where people, when they come to that, this point in their journey, thinking about it's not going to get it done, you got to do something. Why is that so? I mean, it seems self-evident, but explain from your perspective why that's so important. Yeah, you know, I'm a very reflective person. I don't move at light speed so I can get, you know, reflect, think. But even for me, there are points in which I know I know what my passions are. I have this gut feeling that this is the next step and just do something. For me, it was uh, when I got the feedback from that mid-career executive coach back in, I guess right. it was 2003. And I felt like, you know what? I need to go to that International Coach Federation Conference, which is coming up in a few months in Denver. 
And I did. And it's like, this is my people. And I decided right then I'd become a certified international coach, federation coach, which I now am. So that was a step. I did something. I went to that conference. That was a step. You know, I think doing something obviously has got to be in line with your design, your passions, your calling. It's just critical. You've just got to, you just got to take that take that step, you've got to do something. And it's not always going to please everybody. You know, you've got to do what you feel is right. Now, maybe that'll lead to a great high paying job. Or maybe you decide, you know, yeah, I could, uh, I have the background, I could train corporate executives, but I want to teach elementary school kids. You know, well, how can you do that? Maybe you can be a substitute teacher or something. Maybe there's things you can do on the side, maybe some tutoring of, of kids or, you know, whatever that small step would be to see if you want to do it. But you know, ultimately, it's your life, your choice. You've got to decide what it is you want to do and, and take those baby steps. But, you know, you've got to try something, do something. And yes, there could be consequences. But, um, you know, rather than spending a life in eternal regret, you know, the what ifs, mm-hmm. you know, I think of uh, Robert Miller, who we had on our podcast uh, a while back who was a very successful bankruptcy attorney in New York, as he jokingly says, he was so successful, he couldn't get out. But he always had this dream of being a rock musician, which obviously how ma- there aren't that many Paul McCartney's. So the, the chances of him making as much money being a rock musician as a top corporate bankruptcy lawyer in New York was slim. But eventually he did it later in life, but at least he did it. So, uh, and now he loves what he does. You know, you've got to make, you've got to do something. Make that step, make that small step, but don't live a life of regret saying, well, I lived a life of obligation, making other people happy, but not me. Take that step, do something. Yeah. And again, this is so interesting to me. Every time I do this, I pull quotes. I pulled these from an Inc. article, 15 quotes that will inspire you to pursue your dreams. And here's the last one I was going to read. And you just like laid it on a platter for, I mean, it's the perfect (laughs) timing, right? This is from J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter series. She said this, never be ashamed, exclamation point. There's some who will hold it against you, but they are not worth bothering with, right? Her point, right? That point is, I'm going to do something, right? That's your point. I'm going to do something. That's the, you know, don't be ashamed of it. Do it. If it's your vision, your passion, do it. Absolutely. In the case of J.K. Rowling, as some listeners would know, you know, she had this vision of writing a, a children's storybook about, you know, Harry right. Potter and wizards and all that. Well, she submitted that, you know, manuscript to goodness knows how many publishers. And they all said, nah, it's not going to work. Forget about it. I don't really see there's a market for this kind of stuff. And you know, she's probably right. billion, billions of dollars now and umpteen movies. So, but she believed in it. And, and, you know, she had, a, I think, a young daughter at the time. And she was really struggling to make ends meet. Life was was dire, I think, at one point, very dire. But she had this vision, and she wouldn't let it go. She she knew what she wanted to do. She wanted to be a writer of children's stories, and she kept at it, uh, despite all the rejections. It's a great story. Yeah, and it fits in perfectly with what we're talking about here. And what we're talking about here, folks, is seven ways to live by your passions, not others' expectations. That is Warwick's new blog at beyondthecrucible.com, and we have reached... Uh, point seven in these seven points uh, in the blog. Before we uh, get to all blogs, uh, as you probably know, folks, 
All of uh, Warwick's blogs end with reflection questions. We'll get to those in a minute. But I wanted to ask you, all these things that we've talked about, are there, are there key takeaways that stick out to you, Warwick, that you want to leave uh, listeners and viewers with? You know, we all want to live a joyful and fulfilled life. We want to leave a legacy that um, we can be proud of. And you know, hopefully, maybe our kids and others after us. You know, a life of obligation and people pleasing, it means we're going to you know, have missed out. It means it will make everybody else happy except us. That will tend to produce a life of bitterness, of, of sadness. You know, we don't want to be that person that on the deathbed goes, what if? What if I tried that? Right. That would have been so fun. I lived a life of quiet discontent. I played small. I played scared. I didn't live mm -hmm. a life of boldness or courage. I just... I just lived a small life based on pleasing others and obligation, and I made a mistake. At that point, it's too late you know, when you're on your deathbed. So you do not want to be that person. You want to feel like I lived a life that was in line with my dreams, that was in life with my calling and my design. As I've said before, it was a life based on helping others, a life of significance. Uh, a life on purpose, serving others. So when you're on your deathbed feeling like, you know, I lived a life that I loved, I was passionate about, I helped people, I like to think a few people, maybe maybe one or two at least are proud of who I am and what I did. <laughs> I left a legacy yep. of helping others. Maybe it will go on after I'm gone. I don't know. But I feel like it was a life well lived, a life I can be proud of. I lived it on my terms, with my vision and my values, and I was helping people. I had some impact for good. I think that's what every human being wants. They want to feel like they made a difference in the world in some ways, and it was in line with who they are and a life they're passionate about, uh, in line with their calling. That's what we all want. So, you know, a lot of people talk about this. It's very true. You know, live your legacy today. I don't pretend that that's original, but live your legacy today. Live your dreams today. Live your vision today. Live your passions. Live your calling today. Today's the day, not tomorrow. And th that leads perfectly into these reflection questions that you ended the blog with, which are things that folks who are watching and listening can reflect on, can ask themselves to help them not get to that place that you just described. First reflection question is this, why do you feel obligated to please your family, friends, and coworkers? Don't just ask yourself that question, but do something about it. Write, write it down, right? Get it there, uh, ruminate on it, think about it. Don't just think of the answer, write them down, think about them, think about how you can overcome whatever you find there that is impeding you. Uh, the second reflection question is, um, what do you feel you are good at what are you passionate about and what change do you feel you can bring that the world needs? Even a few starting thoughts are very helpful. And again, they're more helpful if you do something with them, you write them down and you, and you continue to kind of think through them, look for opportunities to do something with them. And that's the last of the reflection questions. I didn't even read all these beforehand work and I knew that was going to be the last one. The last reflection question is what first step, however small, are you going to make today? Not tomorrow, not next week. What are you going to do today to live a life in line with your calling, your dreams, and your vision? Again, think in terms of that inner sense of what 
next right step you should be taking today? Those questions, think them through. Yes, reflect on them. They're reflection questions. I would add, they're so important. Reflect and write it out. Journal about it. Really get this. Really get it out there so that you you have it opened up. Don't don't go small here. Don't go fast here. Dig in deep. Um, we have come to the end, Warwick, of the uh, of your latest blog called Seven Ways to Live by Your Passions, Not Others' Expectations." As always, uh, the last word is yours if you want it. Is there anything else you'd like to say to folks who are listening and watching? Maybe reflecting on what you don't want, which we talked about is helpful, to live a life of quiet discontent, a life of fear, where you lived others' obligations. You don't want that. You lived a life of people-pleasing. You know, you have the God-given right to pursue your life, your way, in line with your gifting, your passions, your vision, that's a that's like a, a technicolor life as opposed to a black and white life. That's sort of like the Wizard of Oz, you know, starts in black and white and goes <laughs> color. Right, yeah. right, right. You want right. to live a colorful life, not a dreary black and white life of obligation and people pleasing. It's soul crushing. It's soul destroying. Why live a soul crushing and uh, you know a life, a soul destroying life? So I'd say. You are worth it. You have, I believe, the God-given right to live a life uh, that's serving others in some capacity, uh, that's in line with your vision, your passions, your calling. You have the right. You have the right to do that. So today's the day. You are worth it. Live a technicolor life, not a black and white, dreary, drab life. And that's not me judging you or anybody that's saying you have the right to live your best life in light of your own dreams and ill calling. I have been in the communications business long enough, folks, to know when the last word on the subject's been spoken. And the last word on this subject has been spoken by the gentleman who wrote all the words that we've talked about as we've had this discussion. And uh, normally I, I I will do a sort of a long wind down to end the episode. I'm going to do it a little differently here. I'm going to I'm going to go with this idea that there are two huge points in this blog that you can remember. And if you use those as bookends for what you get from this experience, it can help you vault beyond your crucible and lead to a vision that takes you to a life of significance. And that's this. It's your life. Number one, do something. The other bookend. Do that. Do everything that's in between those and you will find yourself leading a life of significance. If you enjoyed this episode, learned something from it, we invite you to engage more deeply with those of us at Beyond the Crucible. Visit our website, beyondthecrucible.com, to explore a plethora of offerings to help you transform what's been broken into breakthrough. A great place to start? Our free online assessment which will help you pinpoint where you are on your journey beyond your crucible and to chart a course forward. See you next week.